You're listening to Rockland Community Church, connecting all generations to Jesus. Well, if you'd like to grab a Bible and follow along, you heard it read and then you heard it sung from Psalm 63, what one of the um, the greatest preachers of the early church in the fourth century, John Chrysostom, said that this psalm, it's, he says, the spirit and soul of the whole book of Psalms is contracted into Psalm 63. I also happen to think that the best singular verse on what worship is and how to worship is found in this psalm. Worship is a word that uh, you, you hear quite a bit, especially around church and in Christian circles. And it does, um, it, it, we should take a moment to say, what do we mean by that? What do we mean by the word worship? And the very short version, the very simple version is you can think kind of worth-ship as though something is worthy of something. And it really, when we say worship, it is declaring the worth of something else. You are declaring a value of something else. You might be heaping praise upon something else. And so we worship uh, different things. There's some examples of worship uh, even today. Here's one example of worship. There's Taylor Swift and her fans. I'm not necessarily faulting her for it, though I have to say I have a story sometime that I got. I went to a Taylor Swift concert once. And, uh, and I went with my wife, and it was me and her and like 60,000 13-year-old girls and the entire thing. Um, and she puts on a heck of a show, I have to say. Um, but there were moments, like there was one where she, she steps out. I may have shared it. She steps out, and then she's, she's looking at everybody, and the music stops. And she's got her microphone like she's about to sing and then pauses. And the whole place just roars or screeches, maybe I should say. They're just going crazy. And it's, I, and it's you know, 10 seconds of just screaming. And the, cam, and the camera's on her. She's on the big thing. And she's just going... Like that, and looking out and going like, oh my goodness, I can't believe everybody's doing this. And I'm just looking and going, I'm sure you can't believe people are doing that. Like they have at every other tour stop that you've had leading up to this point. And she is there, and they are just screaming and screaming and screaming. And she is a heck of a performer, I have to say. I mean, she knows what she's doing. Obviously, that's why she's so successful. And all I could think as I was watching it is going, this is worship, People are screaming and crying out and declaring her worth. Here's another example of worship that'll probably happen today some. Uh, some of you may have stayed up last night and had little moments of this, but if you think about like fans, fanatics, um, oftentimes that's what it is. It's, it's crying out. It is, it is people will dress up. Men will go to like Broncos games where it's snowing and not wear a shirt because they want to put the, you know, they want to put a word across them or something. Like there is, there is praise that's happening. There is a following that is happening. My family knows, sorry, but if the Cowboys lose, they go, let's not talk to dad for the next little bit, right? Like these things can affect us deeply because what happens is at least one element of worship. Here's another image I think that is also a little bit of worship. This is a big one today. I got my phone and I'm going to get my screen time and it's going to be, you know, sometimes I feel like 
I feel like some kids' screen time, especially, not just kids, I shouldn't say that, their screen time's like more than their hours in the day, and I'm like, how does that even work, you know? And you just see, like, I'll go to dinner, and I'll just watch this nice couple sitting across from each other just doing this the whole time, and I do wonder, like, are you texting each other? Because you could talk just right across, that she's lovely, look at her, you know? Look across the table and have a conversation, but instead, there's something about, like, if you just look at how much time people spend in front of screens, there's something in us that is saying, we value this. We are heaping praise on this. We esteem this. We are saying this is worthy of our time. We worship in all sorts of different ways today. There's some, other, there's some misconceptions about worship in the church as we're thinking about declaring the worth of God. Um, some think that even though, even though music is a part of it, some think that when, you, when I talk about worship, all we're talking about is music. And if the only way to worship is by music, some of us are in a, have a lot of trouble. Some of us, well, I guess if that's the only way to do it, how in the world? I, I, I can't sing real great. I can't play an instrument. And yet, yet when we're here and we're gathered together, we're, music is a part of the worship of God, no matter how talented we are at it naturally or what we learn. But it's not all it is. As though basically worship is like everything that leads up to the sermon and then it stops. Well, what happens in the sermon? Come on, we're reading the word of God and we're declaring what he has said. We're gonna gather around the Lord's table. That's an act of worship. Even, even taking an offering in the worship service is not, it's not pragmatism as to why we pass the plate so you get more money that way. It's, it's, we are saying this is an act of worshiping God. And you heard Paul say it as we're returning our gifts to him of what he's blessed us with. I think some also, uh, perhaps when we think about worship, we think about this time and that's it. As though, you know, don't, wor- don't worry about worshiping from like 10.01, you know, until 8.59 of next Sunday, if you're here next Sunday. Like, it's really, it's just what we do here. And the reality is we are worshipers 24-7. What this gathering provides is the opportunity to do it, and you don't have to do it alone. And you get reminded of God's people that are also worshipers that are coming together to gather to worship him. When people think sometimes of worship, sometimes it, it can become, uh, I, I'm performing certain religious duties, I'm, I'm showing up at church, I pick up my Bible, I say a prayer, I da, 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 and it's just kind of going through the motions. And I want to give a big clarification here, because Jesus talked about something in Matthew 15. He says, <clears throat> he's talking about the leaders in their day, he says, this people honors me with their lips but their heart is far from me. Then he says, in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Okay, let me try and bring some clarity here because sometimes our acts of worship may not come from a place where our heart is just bursting. It might come from a place of, I wake up in the morning, I pick up my Bible, and I, and I, I read it. And it is an act of obedience, even if we're going, I don't really feel it, feel it deep down. So acts of obedience of worship are a good thing. Jesus is saying that's not all they are, though. And in this text right here, actually what Jesus is saying, he's saying they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. We immediately go, oh, they're feelings. So if we're not feeling it, then we're doing it in vain. That's not really what he's saying. What he's saying is they don't understand even who I am. He says um, they're teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. 
In other words, he's saying, you have come up with some doctrine, some things you think are true, and you're looking at the truth of God as revealed in Scripture, and you're saying, we should have equal say. What we say is just as important as what God says. And he's saying, they have a complete, utter misunderstanding of God and who he is in his relationship to mankind. So this isn't as much about feeling it. This is, they are going through the motions and they have gone through the motions so much they have now supplanted God and said what we say is just as good as what you say. And it's important to hear that because sometimes, I think in our, in our American mindset, if we're not feeling something, we feel like hypocrites if we actually do it and go through the motions. And I, I'm gonna tell you, I, I, there, there are good times to go even if I'm not feeling it. I will worship you anyway out of obedience. And I bet we do this all the time. How many meals have you blessed where, you know, before you pray for the meal, you you don't have like a, let's all just take a few moments and settle our hearts and minds. Like sometimes it is just, we're about to eat and this is just a good discipline to have. And so you just get the food out and Lord bless this microwavable hot pocket that we just threw on the table here, you know, whatever it is, it's going to, you know, tear me up later, I know, but thank you, Lord, like, and it's just like quick, and it's just kind of doing it, and it's maybe not, like, you you know the words to say, I want to tell you, the discipline of doing that can be good, and I think the enemy would like us to go, well, you're not feeling it, therefore you're a hypocrite. Listen, pray before the meal. Has anybody, when we said the Lord's Prayer, um, is there, is, are there times you might pray it and you go, wow, that didn't just like make me you know, sing, sing oh glory or anything as we're doing that. There is something good about saying it together, about saying it over and over and over. Amen. Read your Bible, even if you don't feel like it. Be a church, even if you go, man, my heart may be kind of far. Run to God's people, run to his word, run to a life group or a Bible study or Christian community. Instead of saying, well, I'm not really, really there, therefore I feel like a hypocrite. It's good to do the right thing even if we don't feel like it. Like imagine if I were to say, um, I don't really feel like being nice to my wife and so therefore I'm not going to. You would go, come on. She, she needs to be served and loved and adored and everything regardless of how you're feeling at that moment. It's kind of the same way in our covenant relationship with the Lord. So there are times when our acts of worship can feel like mere acts of obedience. Like, I know what to do, and so I will do it. And then maybe over time, those different acts can be formative and they can be good. Maybe sometimes we'll feel it more than others, things like that. Um, But hopefully when we worship, it is not always just at that level of obedience. It can move to something Greater, And that's what David is actually talking about here today. So here's the whole message in a nutshell. I want to show you what David does in worship to move from obedience to overflow. Where he is doing the things he ought to do, and then he's going to get to a point where he's remembering what God has done, and so his praise and worship is out of overflow of love for him. And the last misconception about worship is this. Because some people hear this and think that's something that other people do. 
man, if I just knew more, then I could really worship. If I, just, if I could sing better, then I could really worship. If I just liked music more, then I could really do it. If I just liked the Bible more, I could really do it. If I'd grown up in church, then maybe I could do it more. Or maybe if I had this, this sin in my life, this thing that I feel like I just keep falling back into, Lord, then and only then, if that were gone forever, then and only then would I be able to worship like everybody else. This today is for you. Yes, you, the person who just went, yeah, but not me. Yes, you. That's who this is for. David writes this psalm. It says, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Um, this is uh, later he's going to refer to the king and about himself. And so this is probably when um, Absalom, his son, um, had a coup and threw him off the throne. And David went from everything in the palace to now out in the desert. And he is hiding from his own son. And watch David as he moves from obedience to overflow. And here's the starting point, is you'll see intentionality in what David does. Verse one, he says, Oh God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Isn't it fascinating? He is probably out in the wilderness in the desert, and what he does is as he's offering his praise to God, he uses the things around him. You're my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. I'm guessing he is out there really, really thirsty. My flesh faints. Oh God, as I feel like I'm about to pass out from all this heat. Man, my flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there's no water, kind of like the place where I find myself right now. But I seek you. Amen. One of the important things to note that he starts out, and if you have a King James or New King James you're following along, I'll explain a difference here in just a minute because you have a different word. But earnestly is a good translation. It's a good word there. There is intentionality behind what he's doing. There is effort behind what he is doing. And Following the Lord takes intentionality and taking effort. It takes effort. Praising him and worshiping him takes effort. And we live in a world where so many things in our life come without any effort. Um, I'm thinking about if you were just to say, I wonder what's going on in the world right now. This is, this is the effort it takes with your phone to go like this. That's about it. In fact, your phone and your news services are all too happy to just push, 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 push. Here's what's going on. Here's what's going on. Here's what's going on. Click this. Look at social media. Look what's going on in this person's life, this family's life. And it just push, push, push. And it is so easy to just find whatever we want to find at a moment's notice. It's easy. I think about entertainment. If you want to be entertained, you know, we've got, the, uh, we've got cable as well, but I just think like, Oh, what do I want to watch? Let's see. Do I want to watch um, Disney Plus or Netflix or YouTube TV or Hulu or Apple TV or ESPN Plus or Paramount Plus or HBO or Peacock or AMC Plus or Crackle or Roku or any of the major sports streaming service or ABC or NBC or CBS or Fox and all their streaming services? And all that took was to do anything I want to do. It takes no effort to just get anything that I want. It takes no effort. And here's David in the middle of the desert going, I have no energy. 
I am starving. I am absolutely parched in this heat, and I feel like I'm about to pass out. I have no energy, but whatever energy I have, I'm using to seek you. Following Christ takes effort, and the enemy wants to pull you from that, to tell you that that effort is not worth it, to tell you there's way better uses of your time, or hey, look around, you're in the desert. That means that God all of a sudden is not praiseworthy because he's the one that puts you in the desert, apparently. It's not worth it. That's what the enemy wants to do. And he actually, when he says, earnestly I seek you, he actually gives a very practical way to do it right here, and you might miss it. Um, because it has to do with the Hebrew. If you have the King James or New King James, it actually has it. The word earnestly, all right, here's the difference. The word earnestly is the word shahar, and the word for dawn is shahar. Shahar and shahar. There's other words he could have used for earnestly, but instead he chose this one particular word that looks an awful lot like the word for dawn, and so the King James just tries to take the meaning of what's behind it, and it says, um, and so it says, early I seek you. Oh God, you are my God, early I seek you. And I think there's really a play on words here that he's doing, this saying, I'm doing this in earnest, and one of the ways he does it is he says, at the break of dawn, the first thing I do is I get up and I seek you. That's a way to do it. The very first thing. I started, um, <clears throat> I started studying uh, when, I, when I, was, uh, I knew I was going to come here and be the lead pastor. I started studying other pastors, and I wanted to just look and see all these people that I respect, like reading biographies and seeing their interviews and things like that, of what are some things that they do um, that they are just passing on to younger pastors. And so um, one of the things I saw over and over and over, they would all give their first thought of the day, whether or not they were morning people or evening people, they gave their first thought of the day, the first time of day to the Lord. I had one I was watching and um, I, started I started noticing like, boy, they all seem to be consistently saying this. I'm going to really start paying attention. The first one, uh, one of them after that said the first thing he does in the morning is he gets up, he grabs a cup of coffee and he goes and he sits on his favorite recliner. He gets up at like four and goes and sits on his favorite recliner and he says, I just take an hour and a half of Bible reading and personal praise and worship. And I thought, if that's what it takes, I'm probably going to be a bad pastor. I don't know that I'm going to get up and sit in my comfy chair at four in the morning and just for an hour and a half. I don't know if I got that in me, man. And some of you hear that and go, yeah, right, I can't get up. And some of you may do that, and that's great. But for some of us, that's really a difficult thing to do. But I love that he was saying, I get up, and the first thing I do, and that's how he's wired, that's how he works. Another one talks about he gets up in the morning, the first thing he does is he just, he has to get up and get moving, and so he just goes and walks, or he lives in um, uh, Georgia, I think. So, yeah, Georgia. So he goes and he just walks around in nature. And all he's doing is as he's walking, he just gets the blood flowing, has his cup of coffee, and just starts to get his mind going on the things of God. Another one had um, young kids when he started out, and he said he would get up in the morning first thing a few minutes early, just walk around and just start praying over the house, just walking around the house before anybody else is up, praying over it. Another one said, I can't get out of bed, and so what he would do is he, he said, I'm so a night person, and so he said he'd get up in the morning, he'd keep his phone, this is a younger guy, um, he'd keep his phone like do not disturb, and he would get it, um, so he's not seeing any texts, any notifications, any, anything, he would get up, he puts on an audio Bible, and he would set it down and lay back down in bed. 
And he said that worked for him. And he would, I don't know, some of you may fall asleep if you hear like this, you know, this somebody just talking and talking and talking. He said it works for him. Another one wakes up and he says, the first thing I do, he said, the first thing I do, this is on a YouTube video. He said, the first thing I do every morning is I wake up and I go like this and I look around and I think, I'm not in heaven yet. Thank you, Lord, for getting me up another day. He said it was his first thought. Others would say things like the first thing they do, they let their knees hit the ground first thing in the morning. Um, They wake up, they walk over, they have a devotional that they read. There's all sorts of things that happen. But I would bet virtually everybody that you respect, almost everybody as a believer does something to give their first time in the morning to the Lord. One uh, theologian says this. He says, the Christian dedicates to God, and then he says, the sweet hour of prime. He opens the eyes of his understanding together with those of his body and awakes each morning to righteousness. I think that's one of the things that David is saying is my first thought of the day is of you. My first thing I will do is I will praise you. However that works differently for different people, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to praise you. I think it's a time frame reference because you also see down in verse 5, it says, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. And look at verse 6, when I remember you upon my bed. This is a reference to the evening. And meditate on you in the watches of the night. This is, I am bookending my day with acts of worship. I'm the first thought, my last thought, the first thing I do, the last thing I do, David is saying, I seek you, and this is the way I do it. First thing in the morning, I seek you. Right before I go to bed and into the evening, I seek you. And what you'll start to find happens is when you get the bookends right, it starts to take care of everything that happens in between. You become a walker and a worshiper of God. Like, if, if you look for the negative, you'll start to see it everywhere. Like, here's option one. Get up first thing in the morning, pull out your newspaper, pull out uh, social media, get out your phones, and just get all the different notifications that have been pushed to you while you were sleeping about everything in our world that just broke overnight. And then try to muster up the joy of the Lord throughout the day in light of the very first thought of the day was something Negative. And then, and then if you end the day with all, you're watching the news or whatever you do, and it's just the doom and gloom of everything that's happened in the world, I think that's going to be uh, difficult. I think it's easy to be negative. It's hard to worship in that. Or option two, if you can somehow start out the day, each day, with a reminder of God's ultimate victory, of God's ultimate sovereignty over the world, then all of a sudden, then you look at the news of the day, if you do, and now you're seeing it in light of the fact that we have a victorious king that rules and reigns over this world and will one day come back to set everything right. Now you're seeing the news of the day differently. And so I'll just beg of you to please don't give yourself another obstacle to worshiping God. If you can start, if you start out negative in the morning, you're giving yourself kind of this other thing to overcome. But if you can start out first thing and just figure out, Lord, teach me, just show me, just open my eyes to you today, all of a sudden it puts everything else in perspective. Which brings us to, I think, the best verse on worship in the entire Bible. It's verse three. Let me read verse two first. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. That's it. 
Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Psalm 63, three, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Why will my lips praise you? Why will I worship you? He gives the reason, because your steadfast love is better than life itself. Anything that happens to me, anything that happens to me, if I lose my very life, your steadfast love is better. That's what he knows about God, and that's what David clings to, even when his body is just taking a beating being in the desert. God, I remember who you are. I've looked upon you in the sanctuary. So David says, um, I, I remember the tabernacle. I remember those days. And if you remember the tabernacle, where he's not right now, right now he's out in the wilderness, um, the tabernacle was meant to communicate some things about God. They would go and they would um, shed blood repeatedly with the idea that your sin is a very, very big deal and God is perfect and holy, and, but there has to be a way made so you can be in fellowship with him. And so blood was shed. So David would remember the temple and remember the brokenness of himself and his people, the glory and the perfection of God, and yet the beauty that God has made a way. And of course, we know that's a foreshadowing to what Jesus Christ would ultimately do to give his blood. So David says, I've looked upon you in the sanctuary. He's remembering the tabernacle, and that's what's causing him to praise him even in, uh, in the desert. <clears throat> He's reminded of how sinful people can approach a holy God. He's reminded of the depth of sin of the people and the need for grace of God and the offer of grace that God gives. They have in the temple, you've got the golden lampstand, the table of showbread, the golden altar of incense, lavish decorations. You've got the priests in these incredible garments, and they're all supposed to point to the majesty of God. There were symbols to remind you that God is the creator. There were symbols to remind you that God is the redeemer. There's symbols to remind you of the power of God and the glory of God. And David is saying, I remember that. And so in spite of my circumstances, because your steadfast love is better than life, so my lips will praise you. Amen. We tend to, I think, get the order wrong, that our, that our um, experiences govern our view of God. So, so follow me here. If my experiences, if David's experiences in the desert, in his mind, um, govern how good or bad God is at that particular moment, he might be in the desert going, I don't understand why you're doing this. Uh, I would do it differently, God. I'm a good guy. I was the king, and now here I am out on, the, you know, whatever. Like, I'm, I'm giving you like a solid B minus right now, God, for how you're godding over the world. Like if he starts to all of a sudden go, my circumstances think that you get like a B minus as a God right now, he is going to worship him as though he's a B minus God. But if he can look and remember the truths to say, because your steadfast love is better than life itself, better than any circumstance that I find myself in, you are a plus, 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 plus God. You are the perfect and holy and righteous God. You are the powerful God, the sovereign God. You are the God who loves even when I'm giving you no reason to love. And he says, when I remember that, all of a sudden my life, my getting back to the palace, my hunger, my thirst seems small. And he says, I hunger and thirst for you. Amen. This is what it means to worship from overflow. Remembering the truth of God despite the circumstances in which we find ourselves. 
He says, so I will bless your name as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. Here's the image that I got. I picture David going from the palace to the wilderness. I picture the reason he had to is because his own son, whose name has the word shalom in it, which means peace, is the one who started the coup and overthrew him and kicked him out. I'm picturing David hungry and thirsty, which is preposterous for the king of Israel to have any want whatsoever. And I picture the enemy himself, Satan, just sitting there going, oh, I got David right where I want him. And David is out because his circumstances are so, so bad, he is going to crumble in his relationship with the Lord. And then when the king does, people are going to go, well, surely if King David is questioning God, surely all of us can as well. And there he is in the midst of the desert, just hungry and thirsty and alone and abandoned and probably questioning and wondering why these things are happening. I see the enemy going like this. And what does David do? Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land, there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. David's hungry, and so he goes, I'm hungry for you, God. I'm thirsty. I'm thirsty for you, God. He's saying, your love is better than life itself, which if you think about it, is really the normal Christian life. Like Paul gets thrown in prison, and what does he do? He just starts preaching the gospel to people who are in prison. You're preaching the good news about the thing that got you thrown into prison? Oh, yeah. And I don't know that he ever said this, but his steadfast love is better than life. So he's like leading people to faith while he's in chains. What about the apostles that just get beaten for their faith and it says they rejoiced because they were counted worthy to suffer for his name. Your steadfast love is better than life. Paul, we're going to kill you. Well, to live is Christ, die is gain. Your steadfast love is better than life. Listen, his love for you and for me, it's better than my kids, my wife. It's better than any earthly pleasure here. It's better than any um, worldly praise that could be heaped on me of a job well done in whatever area it is, anything in the world. Nothing compares to the steadfast love of God. Very different from I'm just sort of dabbling in religion a little bit. Very different from I'm morally sort of conforming to what I think the Bible teaches. This is understanding the depth of the love of God. This is why he says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. That's why Paul can say everything he has, he gives his big resume and he says, everything I consider it loss as to knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. First thing and last thing every day can move us from um, just an act of obedience, which is good, to now all of a sudden being reminded of his goodness and his love, and then we can start to praise him from the overflow of our lives of what he's done. There's a story about a, a godly woman that lost both her husband uh, and her only child <clears throat> very early in life, and then she was, um, she was drawing near to death herself and was ill, and her family members, they'd all been fervent Christians, and um, some people came to try to encourage her um, in some of her last days. 
And one, um, one woman in particular said, soon you will see them both. Soon you're going to see your husband and your kid. Soon you're going to see them both. And she answered, as long as I get to see Jesus first. He was the most precious thing to her. And that's how David can say, because your steadfast love is better than life. I will praise you. I will worship you. That's the Christian life.